Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Upsetting things happen all day long. Stressful things happen, right? And when something stressful happens to me, I can literally feel that my body starts to rev up. My heart rate starts to go up. You know, I might even start to sweat. I might start to ruminate about it. So if I can come home and have somebody at home to talk to about this or have somebody to call who's a good listener and I can talk about how upsetting this thing was that happened during my day, I can literally feel my body calm down again. And so what we know is that the human organism was meant to go into fight or flight mode to meet a challenge. But then when the challenge is gone, you know, when the grizzly bear isn't there anymore, we're meant to go back to a baseline equilibrium. What we find is that if you don't have anybody to talk to, if you don't have anybody to help you with negative emotions, with tremendous worry and rumination, that your body can stay in a kind of chronic fight or flight mode. And that what that means then is that you have higher levels of inflammation throughout your body that breaks down multiple body systems, higher levels of stress hormones circulating in your bloodstream. And so we think that what relationships do for us is that they are stress regulators and that when we don't have them, we are chronically distressed. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Bob, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I'm very happy to be here. It is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a new book out called The Good Life. And, you know, I know that probably everybody listening to this has heard of you because you have one of the most 10 uh, watched TED Talks of all time. Uh, But before we get into all of that, I thought we'd start with a very fitting question, given the subject matter of your book and your work. And that is what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on your life and your career and the choices you've made? Wow. Okay, so I wasn't one of the cool kids. Um, I was actually one of the smart kids and being smart in Des Moines, Iowa was not cool, uh, cause I liked school. Um, but I was also one of the theater kids. I loved doing acting in plays. 
And I actually was part of a pantomime troupe in my high school. Um, and so those were my people and, uh, and really loved that because these were people who were pretty expressive and a little out there, especially for, you know, Des Moines, Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, so yeah, so I, I both felt like an outsider and had a little tribe of people who, who I felt cared about me and I cared about them. What is it about theater people that makes them such a tight knit group? Because my best friend was in theater in high school. He's a lead in musicals. And when we talks about, you know, reunions and stuff like that, almost all the people he's still close to are people that he knew from theater. And I, I wondered what that is. Like I always got that sense that there was this just really deep sense of camaraderie with theater people that I didn't necessarily see in other high school social groups. You know, I think it has to do with creating something together, right? And I, I think teams, I think sports teams often have that kind of camaraderie because you're doing something together that, that has to be a co-creation. And so you have this shared goal. And then when it comes off well, it's so exciting. And so there's something about, you know, building toward a performance of a play or a musical that's just so it's, it's, uh, so bonding because, mm-hmm. and, and of course there are so many mistakes and jokes and gaffes and, and all these things that you then get to reminisce about. Um, it was my favorite thing during my adolescence yeah. by far. Were you born and raised in Des Moines? I was. Okay. So this is something I've always wondered about. I, I remember asking Lydia Denworth about this. I moved around as a, a kid a lot. I moved after my freshman year in high school. And I always thought about the fact that this just had such a disruptive impact on my, you know, friendships in high school. And it's funny because I went out on a date last night with a girl I went to high school with who I didn't know at all in high school. And you know, we kind of, you know, we had a really nice time. It was just interesting. But, uh-huh. um, I, I wonder, you know, you studied friendship as well. How, what have you noticed in terms of how friendships differ when somebody has lived in one place their entire life? versus kids like me, you know, who they call third culture kids, where we've lived in every damn corner of the planet, uh, which I wouldn't trade for the world now. But when I was young, I just every time we moved, I, I was annoyed with my parents that we were leaving to another place, particularly after freshman year in high school. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that must have been rough. So I think it varies. It varies depending on the kind of person you are. Some kids, you know, moving is hard, no matter who you are, but some kids are just better at have an easier time making new friends. And so for those kids, it's not devastating to move. It's hard. But then you settle in, you find new friends in the next place at the next mm-hmm. school, right? Some ki- For some kids, it's really traumatic. For some kids, they never catch up. It sets them back socially. And so I think a lot depends on who you are. I would guess that you were... um a somewhat socially okay kid, right? That you, you yeah. figured out ways to talk to people, to, to, to reach out to new people when you move to a new place. Well, it's not a coincidence that I've built a career that ensures that I'll never stop meeting new people. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So, but that doesn't say it wasn't hard for you. It's just that I think what you were probably one of those kids who had the inner resources to meet the challenge of moving. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing that the reason I, I asked that question is I, I noticed this profound difference between my friendships and my sister's friendships. She when she got married, half her bridesmaids were her friends from high school. 
Uh, I think there must have been five of them. And I just thought to myself, like, I have one friend from high school who I even consider inviting to my wedding. He's my best friend. <laughs> we didn't even become best friends until 20 years after we graduated. And yeah. I noticed she has these friends that have been there in her life since they were in sixth grade. And they're still friends to this day. And I think about my closest friends, and they're the ones I've made later in my adult life, like in my mm. late 30s and, and early 40s. So mm. I, I wonder, you know, it's not like the depth of those friendships is any less, you know, uh, rich than my sister's friendships, but it's different. Like we don't have this history of 20 plus years together. And I mean, as somebody who grew up in one place, you know, uh, your, for so much of your life, like I wonder how that affects your own friendships. And, you know, have you seen the differences in those two? groups. You know, we haven't studied that in our research, but I know from my own experience that I have some friends. I have one friend who I played with starting at the age of three, and she's still my friend. Uh, I have a friend who I'm really quite close to still, who I went to kindergarten with and all the way through school until we went to different colleges. And those are different friendships. Um, I will say, for example, that I've grown apart from each of them. I don't think they would be my friends now if we were just starting out. We do very different things. We have different sensibilities. But because we have this shared history, like I can argue with my friend Dennis about something that happened in third grade and our wives sit and look at us and just laugh like, you know, what is this? And there's something you can't make old friends you know, at this point in life, you know, they, they, like it just doesn't happen. And so he will always be my friend, be, even though we're different and even though we annoy each other, because this shared history is something that no one else has. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, when we had Lydia Denworth here, she was talking about how our friendships change throughout our lives. People move away, you know, people's Lives change. Um, I want to bring back a clip from my conversation with her. Take a listen. It's just much harder to maintain a relationship when people move further apart, but it's not impossible. So it really depends on motivation again and, and how much it matters and how I think what does happen is to be generous. We'll say that people get busy and then they get caught up with the new people in their life or their work. And the longer things go when they haven't seen someone, the less connected they feel, the less up on the day-to-day -day of their life that person is. And so it's natural that it can fade away sometimes. And it's not actually the end of the world. This is one of the things I think is important. So when you said that it didn't feel reciprocated in the same way, that's the critical juncture where you, you can say to yourself, maybe this friend isn't this friendship isn't sustaining me in the same way and I'm going to let it go or I'm going to shuffle. I, the analogy I like to use is that if you think of your friends, as you've seen in the book of, you know, concentric circles, the people closest to you and then a little further out, a little further out. When you have a friend like that, it doesn't mean that you have to not be friends with them anymore, but you shuffle the furniture of your friendship to an outer room, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. What do you make of that? I mean, you're the guy who studied this probably more in depth than almost anybody. Yeah, I mean, I think she's she's right on in terms of our friendships shifting over time, that people do come in and out of our lives, you know, and people we imagine will always be at the core of our friendships uh, drift away or we drift away from them. And I think that 
she's right to point out that that's not necessarily a bad thing, uh, that that's a kind of natural evolution. I think that what, what she's also pointing to, which we found, is that if you want somebody to remain your friend, that that requires some active nurturing of the friendship. And that that sometimes we can accidentally let go or lose sight of, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you see a lot of particularly men, like young adult men who start settling down with a partner, maybe they have kids, and they just are so caught up in work life and family life that they, they just don't have any time to talk to their old friends or even their current friend. And those are the people who turn around 10 years later and say, I don't have a friend. And so I think what we want to do is try to help people pay attention to that and realize that that, that that activity, that what we're calling social fitness actually is a practice that you mm-hmm. want to keep doing. Yeah. You don't have to do it with everybody who's ever been in your life, but you want to do it with the people who you still want to hold on to as mm-hmm. your, your friends. Yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, what in the world is the trajectory that led you to studying this of all things? I mean, obviously this is such a fundamental part of our lives, uh, but how in the world did you end up doing this work? Like what's been the trajectory that got you here? <laughs> well... I was always interested in this sort of experience of being human. So, and I was interested in history, like as an undergraduate, I studied history of science and I was really interested in what, what made people do wacky things? Like what, what made people, um, burn witches in Salem, Massachusetts? Like how, what was that? You know, or, or what made Doctors cooperate with the Nazis, like doctors who'd taken an oath to do no harm. You know, what, what was that about? And so what I really began to realize was I was fascinated with why people did what they did, human motivation. And when I went to med school, the thing that I loved was how psychiatry was the field that was interested in why people did what they did and what people's inner lives were like. And so then when I was asked to inherit this study of lives, of whole lives going over 85 years, it was like, yes. I mean, what I did was my predecessor, George Valiant, took me out to lunch one day and said, how would you like to inherit the study of adult development? And, and I took a deep breath and said, well, I don't know. And then he said, come and take a look at some of our files. So I sat down with like a couple of big fat files of lives, like starting in 1938 and going up to the 2000s, uh, when this was happening. And I just found it wonderful and, and, uh, surprising. And I realized I'm really interested in this. And so that's what kind of made me say yes and say, yes, I will devote my life, you know, what I have of it left to this big, messy, uh, complicated study of human beings. So I, I got to ask a, a silly question from just a, a practical standpoint. If you're talking about an 80-year study, like, and what started you know, prior to the existence of the internet, technology, and computers, how the hell do you organize all this information? Oh, my gosh. Well, so it's all on pieces of paper. We have a file room with, uh, you know, hundreds of file drawers that contain these pieces of paper, many of which are crumbling now because it began in 1938. So we got a grant to scan all these pieces of paper. We now have hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper scanned onto into digital searchable PDFs, and it all fits on a thumb drive. And, and what it means, which we love, is that you can search for things that we didn't even know we had. So 
One of my research assistants found that we had asked people in the 1940s, have you ever had a concussion? And it turns out that 46% of the Harvard College undergrads who we studied had had a serious concussion with loss of consciousness. Because mm-hmm. that was before helmets and protective gear. You know, you played sports, you got knocked on the head, you got knocked out, and then <laughs> you got up and you went, you did, you know, you did it again. And so like, it's just one of those surprising findings that we now know we have because we were able, we, we now have scannable, searchable material that we didn't have before. So how did you like keep track of all these people? Because uh, again, you know, this takes us back to the, you know, pre-existence of the internet where, you know, it wasn't probably as easy to say, okay, I'm going to follow this person from 1939 until now. No. And we didn't expect to. Okay. Um, most, you know, most longitudinal studies fall apart before the 10 year mark. Right. Cause they do. Cause too many people drop out. You know, we lose funding, all that. It is so unlikely that we'd still be going 85 years later. I mean, the, the founders of this study would, would be like completely dumbfounded that we were still talking about the same people and studying yeah. the same people. So, so the, I lost track. What was your question? Well, just exactly, you know, to your point, like how in the world have you actually kept track of this? Uh, Uh, Oh, yes. yes, What is, how have you sustained it? Well, one of the reasons why we've been able to sustain it is that we've been really attentive to keeping these people involved with us. So we send them birthday cards. We send them thank you notes when they complete a questionnaire and send it back to us. We stay involved and we keep reminding them, look, nobody can replace you in this study. And you are giving a precious gift to the world, to science, by being part of this study. And so what we do is we're really active in reminding people how important their participation is. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not a hands-off study. So like sometimes people come to us and say, I'm in trouble. I need a therapist or I need a doctor or, and we help them find that. No. Wow. Well, let's get into the book. Uh, you opened the book by saying in a 2000 survey, millennials were asked about their most important life goals. 76% said that becoming rich was their number one goal. 50% said a major goal was to become famous. More than a decade later, after millennials had spent more time as adults, Similar questions were asked again in a pair of surveys. Fame was now lower on the list, but the top goals, again, included things like making money, having a successful career, and becoming debt-free. So naturally, I I think all of us at that age, if you ask us what we wanted to be, I would have said probably the same thing. Rich. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember, I very distinctly remember, I had this CFO at a startup that I worked at, and he was like, Shreen, he's like, why do you want to have a lot of money? And I was like, so I can buy Ferraris and mansions. Yeah. And he looked at me, he said, no. He said, do you know what money gives you? He said, money buys you time. And that always stayed with me because I realized how right he was that almost all the things that I spend money on nowadays are things that allow me to pay somebody else to spend their time doing something that I don't want to do so that I can spend my time doing something I want to do. And I realized how right he was. I was like, wow, you're right. I was like, I mean, you can't even drive a Ferrari in a, a residential neighborhood for more than 20 miles an hour. What the hell would be the point of that? Right, right, right. And that, that's, I mean, he was really wise, you know, because that is the truth of it, that, that it buys you time, it buys you opportunity. Um, 
particularly, you know, one of the things they, they did a study of spending your discretionary income and whether you're happy or if you buy material things or you pay for experiences. And they found that people are happier who pay for experiences. And they're happier for longer than the people who buy material things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's similar, you know, if you pay for uh, someone else's time to help you with tasks that you don't want to do, you're happier. Yeah. This is why I don't put together Ikea furniture, despite what people say about the Ikea effect. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But you know, we get, you got those messages as a young man that a Ferrari was going to do it for you. Like, think of all the messages we get all day long okay. from yeah. media, right? You know, buy the Ferrari, uh, use this face cream and you'll always look young and beautiful. Whatever it is, you know, buy these things. So if you have the money to buy all these things, that's what's going to make a good life. It turns out that's not true. Here's the thing. The message didn't land when I was in my 20s. It didn't change until I got out of business school, graduated into a second recession and was forced to reevaluate my life. And this is something I I wonder, you know, maybe millennials now are more self-aware than people were when I was at that age because we didn't have access to this just abundance of personal development knowledge that's freely available on the internet. Um, But I remember telling somebody that almost everything that I talk about on this show, if somebody had talked to me about any of this when I was 20-something, I was like, this all sounds like a bunch of new age nonsense. I know, I know. So why is that? Like, what is what is that? Why does it take life experience for us to become so much more self-aware about the things that are truly important? Well, that is, that's such an important question. And people have tried to study it. Like, can you speed up the acquisition of wisdom? And it turns out you probably can't. Um, I mean, you can do, you can do some, but a lot of it requires experience. And so it's lived experience. I think that really convinces us. Now, I will say that some of my Zen buddies, so I practice Zen. And that means spending a lot of time on the cushion meditating. That is a way, including when you're young, that you can get a lot of experience of some of these things, like the truth that everything's always changing, the truth that most of what I think is just totally made up and of no consequence, right? Most of the things I worry about are silly. Like you can see that over and over again, sitting on a meditation cushion, and that can convince you even in your 20s, oh, there's a lot of stuff that I could let go of because it's just not that important. But otherwise, most of us living our lives take longer to get these messages into our bones where we really say, oh, I get it. The Ferrari is not going to make me happy. Yeah. It takes time. It takes experience. Well, you know, I've had billionaires here, people have accomplished extraordinary things. And the unanimous theme is that this won't make you happy. I, I think with uh, Jim McKelvey, who was the co-founder of Square with Jack Twitter, he said, money just makes you more of what you are. So if you're an asshole, you'll just become a bigger one. Yeah. But but the funny thing is that you always think to yourself, yeah, dude, you're a billionaire. That's easy for you to say. You know, like I know deep down every one of us kind of is like, yeah, but it would still be nice. Well, but we t- it turns out they're not happier. I mean, when we do study, you know, we study people at different wealth levels, and there have been a lot of studies on this. People aren't happier. Um, and so that that's just an empirical fact. And so we can have fantasies that it must be better, you know, 
uh, on the other side of the income divide. It must be better if you're a billionaire. But it turns out it's not. Uh, it doesn't mean it's worse either. It's, you know, as we say in my field, orthogonal. It's not related to happiness that much. You know, having your basic material needs met, yes, that's related to happiness. So, you know, they have this study of, you know, if you make less than 75000 a year annual household income, you're less happy. But that once you get above 75K, uh, the, you know, and you make more and more money, your happiness doesn't very much. Uh, well, so one of the things that you say is that contrary to what many people might think, it's not career achievement or exercise or a healthy diet. Don't get us wrong. These things matter a lot. But one thing continually demonstrates its broad and enduring importance, good relationships. And you know, if we were to actually put these in a prioritization hierarchy in terms of the way we prioritize our lives, the funny thing is career achievement probably comes at the very top from the time that we're in school. That is the foundation, particularly if you grew up in an Indian family, you're a doctor. So, you know, this better than anybody. Right. It's like, right. Doc, you know, straight A's, doctor, lawyer, engineer, good life. That's the path. Right. Doctor, um, lawyer, engineer or failure. Right. Those are yeah, the four options. Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, but I mean, that's the thing. Like, I, I think that it's not any, you know, secret to us that we don't know that these relationships matter. But, you know, Let's let's actually go. We're going to do this in a, a bit of a weird order. Like it's hard to do this linearly, I've realized. But let's start with education in particular, like in the classroom. Uh, one thing I realized, nobody teaches us how to make friends. Right. It's right. Just, you think, like such a basic skill, like nobody teaches you how to interact with the opposite sex or same sex, whatever it is, if you are romantically interested in somebody like these are just fundamental basic skills for our survival are not taught. In That's schools. Right. So like, what would you do if, if you were basically tasked with going into a kindergarten classroom? They said, Bob, we want you to teach kindergartners how to make friends. I would do just what you're saying. I would teach them those things. And they're, they're starting to do it. There's this whole area called socio-emotional learning, right? And it's a, it, it's a whole set of different programs uh, that are just what you're talking about. It's like teaching kids, little kids, this is what feelings are. This is what anger's like. This is what happens when you get mad at your friend. This is what it's like when your friend gets mad at you. How can you deal with that? This is what happens, you know, when you're upset. What if you sit still and breathe quietly for two minutes? And when you teach kids these things in a systematic way in school, they do better in school. They're happier. They get it. They don't get into trouble nearly as often. They don't get kicked out of school. There's less juvenile delinquency. There's less drug use. They've done these mega analyses of many studies across the world. And if mm. you do this kind of teaching of socio-emotional learning, kids do better. That's what I would invest in. The problem is that many families get scared. They say, you're going to try to teach my kids values. You're going to try to take them away from my family values or what I think is core. And so some families can get threatened by the idea of teaching kids about feelings and how to handle feelings. But if you can get families over that hump, um, it has gigantic benefits for, for family life, for school life, and for the world. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about the biological aspects of this, because one of the things you say is to say that human beings require warm relationships is no touchy feely idea. It's hard facts. Scientific studies have told us again and again, 
Human beings need nutrition, we need exercise, we need purpose, and we need each other. Positive relationships are essential to human well-being. So talk to me about the the true, like just from a medical standpoint, what are the effects like of relationships and you know, the necessity of this? Well, we're still working on that. So we've been spending the last 10 years in our study trying to find out, well, how do relationships matter? Like, how do they get into our bodies and actually change our bodies? And the best reigning hypothesis for which there's more and more data is that it has to do with stress and stress regulation. So if you think about it, upsetting things happen all day long, stressful things happen, right? And when something stressful happens to me, I can literally feel that my body starts to rev up. Excuse me, my my heart rate starts to go up. You know, I might even start to sweat. I might start to ruminate about it. So if I can come home and have somebody at home to talk to about this or have somebody to call who's a good listener and I can talk about how upsetting this thing was that happened during my day, I can literally feel my body calm down again. And so what we know is that the human organism was meant to go into fight or flight mode to meet a challenge. But then when the challenge is gone, you know, when the grizzly bear isn't there anymore, we're meant to go back to a baseline equilibrium. What we find is that if you don't have anybody to talk to, if you don't have anybody to help you with negative emotions, with tremendous worry and rumination, that your body can stay in a kind of chronic fight or flight mode. And that what that means then is that you have higher levels of inflammation throughout your body that breaks down multiple body systems, higher levels of stress hormones circulating in your bloodstream. And so we think that what relationships do for us is that they are stress regulators and that when we don't have them, we are chronically distressed. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Okay, so it's kind of funny. Like I, when you were saying that, I couldn't help but think, yeah, but like, what about people in our family who drive us insane? <laughs> yes, yes. So yeah, I was thinking just like, yeah, being around my mom doesn't decrease my stress. It increases my stress. Uh, and it's funny because we've watched her change a lot over the last month or two. Uh, my sister just had a baby and we're seeing a side of her that we've never seen. And we kind of expected it because we saw it with my grandmother as well. My dad yeah. told me, he said, go look at your grandmother and notice how different she is with you than she is with your mom and how sweet she is and how, you know, warm she is. And, and we're seeing yeah. it and we're kind of like, yeah. oh, this is so great. You saved us. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, talk to me about that because like, I don't think I'm the only one who looks at family and says, oh, you know what? These people are driving me crazy at moments. Yes. And they do. They do drive, <laughs> you know, there's always somebody in our family who drives us crazy. That's just the way families work. That's the <laughs> way close relationships work because you don't choose your family. You know, in most, I mean, you don't, you, you're born into your family and, and we are different from each other. That's just a given. And so I think what we, what we know is that you don't have to be, um, close to every member of your family. If someone drives you crazy, you can take them in smaller doses if it's possible. Um, and we, we know that some relationships are really toxic and it's time to step away and distance ourselves. That is the truth of it. But many relationships are ones we can work out the differences in. So there's a lot to be said for managing disagreements, for working out the differences because it makes the relationships stronger. Um, so we would argue don't walk away from a relationship just because there's some trouble or people annoy you. See if there are ways to make it better. And if there aren't ways to make it better, 
then see if there are ways to keep a friendly distance. But the, but the, the underlying messages don't hold on to grudges because grudges really wear away our own well-being. Yeah. I, I remember, uh, reading this line in the Sadhguru book, Inner Engineering, and this just had always stayed with me. He said, never leave a conversation having said something you'll regret like later. Uh, yeah. and it just, you know, and he tells this beautiful story about a girl who was yelling at her brother. Uh, when they were being taken to a concentration camp because he forgot his shoes and then they were separated at the next station and she never saw him again. And she said from that point forward, she made a commitment to herself that she would never leave the site of a conversation having said something she would regret. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, or at least circle back and say, yeah. I regret saying that, you know, I'm sorry. Can we talk about it? Whatever it might be. But to, you know, it's often, you know, that, that old, uh, maxim about marriage don't go to bed angry uh and and that's not always possible to to avoid going to bed angry but it's kind of the same thing it's like try try to work things out before they fester before they grow yeah um, let's talk about this in terms of the the life stages that you defined which is you know adolescence uh young adulthood you know the next phase you know middle age and, and then you know being elderly I mean, how do people's perceptions of the importance of friendship and their overall happiness change with age? Because I feel, at least in my experience, that I'm actually happier as I've gotten older and I feel like my mood is a lot more stable. I feel like I was just this emotional roller coaster, which I, you know, when I, I read the line where you said, you know, from the outside, adolescence can look like a bundle of contradictions to a middle aged parent. It may look like invasion of the body snatchers, that once adorable adoring child is now a moody teen who at one moment is childlike and clingy and the next moment is a disdainful know-it-all. And I remember thinking, yeah, I'm like, I turned into the biggest asshole on the planet who thought my parents were, you know, horrible people. Right, right. Yeah. And and that's what happens. You know, think about how different you are now than than you were back then. And And you're right, we get happier as we get older on average. Like as a species, we get happier starting in middle age. Um, well documented scientifically. Um, but I think the one thing that's clear is that what's important to us changes. And so what's important in relationships changes. You probably want somewhat different things from your friends now than you did 20 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and that that's okay. Uh, that those, that, that what we want evolves, not, not always. I mean, certainly one of the things we always want is a sense that uh, that we're safe, that we can be ourselves with a few close people, that there are people around who have our backs and will help us. But then beyond that, um, I'm finding, for example, that I want friendships where there's more mutual give and take, where we don't grandstand, we don't just listen to each other and think of the next thing we want to say, but that we really are much more engaged in a a mutual creative conversation where we surprise each other and ourselves, that that's more interesting to me now than it used to be. Yeah. Um, well, it, there's one line that really stood out to me in the book where you said, the fewer moments we have to look forward to in life, the more valuable they become, past grievances and preoccupations often dissipate and what's left is what we have before us. And it, it made me think back to this conversation I had with Frank Ossoseski, who is the director of the Zen Hospice Project. And I said, you know, Frank, I used to have this huge fear of being alone. That was like my greatest fear in life. And I said, it's not anymore. 
because I had two bad relationships. I said, you know what I'm scared of? I'm scared that my parents won't be alive by the time I get married or have kids. And this is what he said to me. Uh, Take a listen. We spend all this time imagining we're going to get ready for our dying. And I think it's a kind of absurd idea to imagine that at the time of our dying, we will have the strength of body, the emotional stability, the mental clarity to do the work of a lifetime. It's an absurd gamble. So we should do this work now. And that includes those of us who are not dying, who are with our aging parents, for example. Be with them now. Tell them you love them now. Waiting is full of expectation. Waiting for the next moment to arrive. We miss this one. Waiting for the moment of dying. We miss all the moments in between. So that's the great thing. Hold death out there as a shine, as a shine a light on it, so to speak, and hold it out there as a way of reminding you to attend to what most matters. So I want to get your perspective on this because I still think I have that fear despite knowing that. I mean, granted, that conversation with Frank changed my behavior and my relationship with my parents dramatically. But, you know, I started going home and having dinner with them every Sunday. And my sister the other night mentioned to me that this is actually really special. She said, we're all together as a family. And this is kind of a rare opportunity getting to spend time with my nephew she has a four-month maternity leave. My friends are like, you're not going to move to wherever you're going next? I was like, no, I'm going to stay here for a little while because I'm not going to get this chance back. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And I love what he said to you. Um, It is, you know, I'm a Zen practitioner. So this is exactly, you know, where I live in my, you know, in my inner life, in my spiritual life. And I think you're right that, you know, he is saying, let death be the, the, the North Star that we can say, okay, time is short and these times are precious. Um, this is a bit of an aside, but, but there's a Spanish liqueur company that made a commercial. Oh, I I've think, seen it. It's oh, beautiful. You've seen it. And yeah. isn't it wonderful? Yeah. And it's a, it's sort of like, oh my God, we don't have that much time left. And this is what you've done with your family, with your parents and we all need to do this because the time goes so quickly. Mm. Um, and it's not like we're going to all make it all happen at the end. It's right now or never. So naturally, that raises a question that I've asked a lot of people, uh, and that is navigating probably what is, in my mind, the, the most profound and terrifying loss, which is losing a parent. I mean, I and I, I feel like there's no self-help book for that one. Right. There isn't a self-help book. For that. Um, I think what we're faced with is a sense, first of all, of the finiteness of, of our own lives when we lose a parent. And, you know, if you think about it, parents have been there from before we had memory. So we've never known a world without our parents in that world. And so it rocks us to our foundations when a parent dies. My, it's like, my God, how can this be? How can the world not have this person in it? And so it's a huge existential experience to lose a parent besides just missing this human being who you love and have all kinds of complicated feelings about and such a long history with. Um, so it's absolutely, um, the norm that it is an event of major proportions for almost all of us, no matter what kind of relationship we had with our parents. 
but, but people do recover. Like they get back to living, they get back to being who they are. Uh, I, I remember my, my friend, Matt's mom, she said, she's like, there's not a day that goes by that you don't think about them even after they're gone. That's right. That's right. I'm sitting here with pictures behind me on a bookshelf. And some of those pictures are of my parents. My parents have been gone for 30 plus years. Uh, but I, I see them whenever I walk into this room. I think about them every day. Uh, they are a part of me. And also I hear them like, you know, in my voice now, as I'm talking to you, I hear my parents, different strains of, of their tone, different phrases they use. It's how we live on in those who come after us. Let's talk uh, about another kind of relationship, which are intimate relationships. You say that romance is something most of us hope for, not only for sexual satisfaction, but also for the intimacy of another's touch, the sharing of day to day's joys and sorrows and meaning that comes with witnessing each other's experiences. For some of us, romantic love feels like an essential part of life, which made me wonder, are there people who don't feel that it's an essential part of life? There are people. You know, one of the things we know uh, is that people vary in the extent that they want a romantic, intimate connection, even that they want a sexual connection. There are people who are not very sexual, who are not very interested in sex. They often, it's a, it's a minority, but they often feel like outliers because so much, you know, most of us are driven by sex for a lot of our lives, right? Um, but some people don't yearn for that, really. And, and, um, some people don't yearn for intimate connection. Some people want to be solitary. There are monastic traditions, as you know, as we all know, that where people go to live out their lives in solitude or in a non-intimate community. And that's really okay. That's another way to go through this human life. So. I remember reading in some book that people who are, uh, you know, not married are tend to die sooner. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm 45. I was like, shit, that just took another 10 years off my life. And then I had a conversation with my friend, Eric Barker, and he said, the biggest problem with most of those studies is they commit survivor bias. He said they only study happy marriages. He's like, the truth is an unhappy marriage doesn't necessarily lead to that. But I mean, talk to me about that because I, I come from an Indian family. So you can only imagine being my age and not married is like the bane of my family's existence. Oh, right. I mean, of course, you have to be married. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I mean, they've, they've I, given up at this point. So, right, right. I come from a Jewish family and it's about as bad. Yeah, um, so I hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I got married when I was 35 and I think my parents were really worried because it had because it was a long, and 35, you know, 35 years ago was a long time, was a, was an old age to be married at. Um, first of all, one of the things we know is that it is never too late. So we had people in our study who found love in their 60s and 70s for the first time um, and found good, solid, stable relationships much later in life. There is no time where it's too late. Mm. And that, I think, is a, a message worth getting out there to people because we can imagine that, oh, you know, I've this the window has closed. This has passed me by. And our study says, no, that's not the case. Yeah, I, I remember I had my friend Jenny Tates here who wrote a book uh, titled Sing How to Be Single and Happy. And she said, she's like distressing about this, make it any better. I was like, hell no. And she's like, exactly. She's like, 
just like, what if you lived the life that you were going to live if this person was already in it? And that always stayed with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because you do want to say, okay, what do I want? What, what's here now that I can do that, that I love to do that, that feels meaningful to me. And then if someone comes along who wants to share that, that's going to be great. Uh, and if they don't, you will still be living this life because this is, this is the only life you've got. You know, as your Zen, uh, guest said, you know, these moments, these are all we have right now. So to say, well, I'm going to, you know, it's, life is really going to get better. It's really going to start when I have an intimate partner. That is letting life pass you by. You know, there's one story that struck me from the book where you were talking to this older couple and they were talking about uh, their fears when it came to the relationship. And the man said that he hoped he would die first so that he wouldn't have to spend his remaining yes. time without her. Yeah. So, I mean, talk to me about that. Like, how does that change people? Like when they lose somebody that they've loved their entire life, like when they lose a spouse, uh, because I'd imagine that much kind of, you know, to, to, you know, your point about parents, maybe it's a little bit different because I've seen friends who got divorced. And I remember talking to my friend about this and he said, you know, you get married and suddenly the next 30 years are clear. You have a vision. And he said the most traumatic thing is that the entire vision gets wiped out. That's right. That's right. Because what happens is we, we grow attached to a partner and the sense is, well, that's it. You know, this person's going to be with me. So when I think, who am I going to have dinner with tonight? You know, it's always the same, almost always the same person. And there's something so comforting about that. Right. And where, you know, where are we going to be when we're in our seventies and eighties? If we live long enough, you know, well, the sense is, the plan is, we're going to be together. And so I totally understand what your friend is saying, that that, that all falls away. That sense of a, of a certain future falls away. Now, in truth, our futures are never certain. You know, I might die tomorrow and leave my wife alone or vice versa. Um, but the what we do is we rest in the secure fantasy that we know what the future is likely to be. And that can afford us some comfort, not a bad thing. Um, I think what happens when people react so differently when they lose a spouse, it depends on how adaptable they are, how they can change set. And similarly with divorce, you know, when suddenly the plan is off and it's not going to happen the way you thought it was, how, how easily can you find new avenues? How easily can you adapt? And all of us are different in our adaptability and we differ at different points in our lives. Yeah. Well, there's one other piece of this that you talked about, which is this concept of corrective experiences, where you say corrective experiences aren't just a matter of luck. Uh, opportunities to shift our view of the world are arriving all the time. Most of them simply pass us by. We're often too tunneled in our own expectations and personal opinions to allow subtle realities of these opportunities to penetrate. And so it got me thinking about conflict with families that, you know, never gets resolved or friendships that come to an end. I mean, you know, I've had some very, very tough experiences, a byproduct of running this business where I had to choose between what was good for the business and a friendship. And I kind of said, you know, I got to choose what's right for the business, even if it means it's going to damage the friendship. And, you know, those people never forgave me for that. Hmm. 
Well, I think, you know, it depends on the relationship because sometimes we do have to choose work over personal matters. Um, I've had to fire people who were my teachers when I was in a particular position. Um, oh, so painful. They did not hold grudges. We talked it through. I said, I hate to do this, but here's our budget. I have to let you go. And um, I think depending on the relationship, sometimes those things can be worked through. Sometimes they can't. I'd like to say, gee, if the relationship is good enough, uh, the friendship won't fall apart when you have to make a choice that's comfortable for your friend. But that isn't always the case. Unfortunately, these are just the, 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 the complexities of a life where we have competing priorities and competing interests. Sometimes I have to, I had to choose between my child and work or between my child and a friend. And the choice was clear, but it was hard and I lost as a consequence. Mm, wow. You, one thing that you mentioned, I know you acknowledge this in the book is there's a bit of bias in the study because we're talking about, you know, predominantly well-off, um, you know, Harvard graduates. I mean, but you did acknowledge that this exp study expanded, right? So talk to me about two things. One is, is what you've noticed here throughout the study uh, common across cultures? Uh, and how does it differ across cultures? And then, you know, when we're talking about, you know, income demographics or demographics in general, how does that differ? Yeah. Well, from the beginning, we had a second study that that started with boys from Boston's not just poorest neighborhoods, but, but most troubled families. So we had these two groups, one very privileged guys from Harvard College, but then uh, some of Boston's most disadvantaged kids. And so we studied both. So we had this kind of difference in social class, in economic well-being. And a lot of the people from the inner city group were from immigrant families from Eastern Europe, some from the Middle East. Um, everybody was Caucasian. Everybody was white. Um, but then we brought in women. So we've had some, quite a bit of diversity in that regard. What we don't have are people of color. So what we've tried to do, for example, in the book, when we present the science and the big findings, we don't present findings if they haven't been confirmed in other populations with di more diverse groups, right? So if it's a, if it's a finding that we just found, but no other study has found, we don't present that because no one study can prove anything, particularly in this kind of research. What you gotta have is different studies pointing in the same direction. Then you can have confidence in the fact that you're putting out there to the world. Yeah. Does that make sense? That does. So what are the uh, similarities and differences that you noticed across cultures? Well, across socioeconomic uh, levels, we found that uh, lack of education was associated with earlier death, uh, that the inner city men lived on average 10 years shorter lives than the Harvard. And what we found was that 25 of the inner city men out of 
456. Uh, so 25 out of 456 actually graduated from college. Very few of these people even went to college, but the 25 who graduated from college lived just as long as the Harvard guys. And it wasn't about their high school, their college diplomas. It was about their education. Cause what we think is that first of all, growing up in a way that you got the support you needed to go to college and stay in college and finish. And then the education that allowed you to, to get that information about what would keep you healthy that was coming out in the sixties and seventies, like that tobacco is really bad for you. Alcoholism is really terrible. Obesity is really bad. Exercise is really good. That those truths were something that the educated people were more likely to see sooner because of their access to this information. <clears throat> so those were two of the biggest, those are the biggest differences we found between the groups socioeconomically. Um, the other thing we found was that the people in the lower socioeconomic group were more likely to stay local. They were more likely to live in large family groups. And that was a good thing. Uh, whereas the Harvard guys came from long distance, often uh, moved around more for their work and lived more in smaller nuclear families and less in big family groups. And so there's a way in which the social class benefits, the cultural benefits of living in big family groups weren't as available to the Harvard men. Wow. Well, you say uh, towards the very end of the book uh, that humans are not born with the biological need to read and write, though the skills are now fundamental to society. We're not born with the need to do math, though the modern world would not exist without it. We are, however, born with a need to connect with other people. Because of this need for connection is it, because this need for connection is fundamental to a flourishing life. We believe that social fitness should be taught to children and be a central consideration in public policy, right along exercise, diet, and other health recommendations. We talked about education. Um, where, where's, where is this going to happen in public policy in a world that just seems to be currently on fire? It is very difficult to enact public policies that will further this kind of education because of the worry about treading on families' cultural values, right? What if we teach about feelings and you come from a family that, that believes that stuff is like, you know, a waste of time and you just need to focus on reading, writing and arithmetic, right? So what if your family says, I don't want my kid being taught that subversive stuff or tolerance for differences, which we know actually help us all and make kids more successful, right? But what if your family doesn't want you to learn that stuff? So that's where we really have to change the culture in a lot of ways. Um, some of this may be by showing the health benefits and the economic benefits of some of this kind of education and training that's there for us, that we can provide for our kids if only we'll do it. Hmm. Wow. Well, I have two final questions for you. Uh, as somebody who's kind of the poster child for this study. How has it affected your own relationships with family and friends to have spent your life dedicated to this? Yeah, well, it has. So 
you know, I'm, I spent my whole career at Harvard, right? And, and, you know, so Harvard is all about achievement and I could spend all my time working, checking things off on my to-do list, you know, sitting and editing one more paper. And what, what the study has made me see is that if I don't take care of my relationships, it's not going to happen. My relationships are going to go away. And so what I do now is I say, okay, who do I need to see? Which of my friends have I not seen in a while? And I really want to reach out to. And so I'm now much more regularly reaching out to people saying, can we go for a walk? Can we have coffee? Um, can we do something together? And that's a change for me. And it's a, been a hugely helpful change in my life. I also, it made me spend a lot more time with my kids. I realized, you know, I don't want to be this, you know, Harvard professor whose kids never knew him. And so, so what if I accomplished a lot at work? If I raised kids who never knew their dad or never felt close to him. So all of this study of mine has really changed the way I prioritize my own life activities. It's funny you say that my best friend and I, because of COVID, even though we were both in Colorado, we just didn't see each other very much because he had a, a young baby. And uh, I think a couple of months back, I told him, hey, I'm doing this weekly podcast segment. I was like, can I co-host it with me? It'll be an excuse for us to actually connect every week. And it's kind of amazing to have that on the calendar, even though it's work related. I was like, look, yeah, we will, you know, we'll benefit work wise. But I was like, we also get to talk to each other and it gives us a reason to talk to each other every week. Exactly. My uh, co-author, Mark Schultz, who I wrote this book with, he and I have a phone call every week at noon, every Friday at noon. Um, and we've had that for 25 years. He lives in Pennsylvania. I live in Massachusetts. But it's, you know, and we talk to each other, yes, about work. And we wrote this book together. We write papers together. But we talk about our lives, our kids, uh, you know. And so it's been an es essential part of our relationship that we have this weekly time together. Mm, wow. Wow. Um, well, this has just been absolutely beautiful and breathtaking. Uh, so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? That, say that again. That, that makes... What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Somebody or something unmistakable. I guess their engagement with life, with their engagement with the world, their engagement with us, right? So if somebody is a really engaged person in this conversation or in this activity, uh, they, we know them, we, we see them, we experience how they are in the world and what they bring to the world. And so I think, I think the quality of engagement, um, with the world is something that makes us, uh, makes us more aware of somebody's presence. Hmm. Beautiful. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else? Well, the book is at a website called thegoodlifebook.com. Um, the, I have a robertwaldinger.com website and we have a, a study website. It's, Adult Development Study, all one word, adultdevelopmentstudy.org. And you can find some of our papers on there and descriptions of the study. And so by all means, check us out. Hmm. 
Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.